0: Day. And thank you for this time of praise that we've already been able to give to you. And we pray that it would be pleasing to you. We know that it's a blessing to us to sing your praises. And now, Lord, we come before you and we come before your word. And we pray that not only would we, would we be blessed through the study of your word, but that it would change us. It would, we would walk out of this place a little bit different of a person, a little bit more like Jesus today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In an online article published a few years ago, Atlas Obscura referenced the 26 real animals that shouldn't exist but do anyway. Some of these animals just look like they don't belong to this world. first up is the saber-toothed deer. (laughs) Have you heard of this one at all? (laughs) The saber-toothed deer. You would think out of all the animals on earth, deer would be the ones who shouldn't have or need anyway saber teeth. It doesn't seem to me that you would need to pounce on, say, a blade of grass. And this just looks Photoshop, doesn't it? But in place of antlers, this animal has these protruding fangs to ward off other males during mating season. I laughed out loud when I saw this next one. Brothers and sisters, meet the blobfish. <laughs> these poor guys. They're pretty aptly named, I would say, and in my opinion, anyway, bear a striking resemblance to Uncle Fester from the Adams Family. <laughs> This last one looks like a mad scientist experiment gone wrong. The horror frog, which seems to give it its name. The horror frog is also known as the hairy frog, as you can see here, which are really just extensions of their skin and actually act as a type of gills to extract oxygen from the water. In actuality, the horror frog is a pretty cool dad because the males stay with the eggs in the water for an extended period of time in order to protect them, and if a predator attacks, will purposely break the bones in his own hands to reveal claw-like protrusions to attack the predator. predator back. Pretty cool dad, huh? Like I already said, all these animals look like they don't belong to this world. And in our passage this morning, Jesus makes the statement that in every sense and meaning, he is not from this world. He is not of this world. What does this mean and what does this mean for us? If you remember from last week, Our passage this morning is a continuation of Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees at the temple on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He made this statement that he is the light of life and the light of the world in verse 12, which we covered extensively about a month ago. Can you believe it's already that long ago that we covered that verse? The very next response from the Pharisees is that in their mind, since Jesus was giving self testimony, what he said wasn't true. And as we looked at last week, the Pharisees' understanding of this was completely manipulative of what the Jewish law actually said. But Jesus uses their misunderstanding to reveal deep theology about his intertwined connection to God the Father. That intertwined and inextricable connection to God the Father was directly connected to how humanity will be judged on Judgment Day. If you're confused by anything what I just said... And you missed that message last week, I encourage you to check that out on our website or podcast platforms. Because this is what brings us to our passage this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 8, and we'll be picking up in verse 21. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 8, 21, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Chapter 8, verse 21, we read, Then he said again to them, I go away. And you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. John records this as again in that Jesus had already said this. In fact, it hadn't been that long (laughs) since Jesus last said these words. Since this is still the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus had already said these words earlier that week. It hasn't even been a full week yet. When the Sanhedrin sent the temple guards to go arrest Jesus, he said to them, "...therefore," Jesus said, "...for a little while longer, I'm going to be with you, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come." Sounds exactly like the verse we just read, right, in in 8.21. Originally, Jesus meant that there would only be a limited amount of time for the temple guards, the Sanhedrin, and really everyone on earth to accept him for all he claimed himself to be. God, the messianic king, and the deliverer from sin. People would seek Jesus in the grave three days after his death and would not find him. And if they didn't repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus for saving them from their sin, they would not be able to go to where Jesus would go shortly after his resurrection. That is the kingdom of heaven. But here, when Jesus reiterates it, he connects it to what he was just talking about. We talked last week about how when Jesus judges souls... It will only be in accordance with what God the Father had already predetermined in his plan for the entire universe. Those who God predetermined would continue in their sin and earn what their sin ever only earns them, and eternity spent in hell would be cast by Jesus into the lake of fire. Those who God predetermined he would have grace and mercy on and lead to repentance and faith in Jesus would be given what they did not deserve, an eternity spent with him. Along with other passages, we look specifically at John 3.18 in connection with this. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, even though God has already predetermined what individuals would do and where they would end up, we fulfill that by how we live our lives and if we ever come to a place of repentance and accepting Jesus as Savior of our sin and King over the rest of our lives. So really, the statement that we often hear from people who don't think they need to be spoken to about the way they're living their lives, only God can judge me, who here has heard that, or may have even uttered it at least once in your life, only God can judge me, is a wildly wrong way of looking at how God will judge you. As John 3.18 says, you judge yourself. By simply continuing in your sinful state and never getting it right with God. Your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life because you didn't want it to be. That's what Jesus is getting at in his reiteration in verse 21 of our passage this morning. Those who continue on in an unregenerative state because they never surrender their lives to Jesus all the way up till their dying breath simply seal their fate. They all, they've already died in their sin and where Jesus ascended to after his death and resurrection, they will never go. There will be no miraculous event where you stand before God having never taken his salvation for yourself and he says, Eh, you know what? You were okay. I'd give you three out of five stars. Not great and not good enough for me to purchase anything from you on eBay, but good enough to enter heaven. No, the truth is very simple. If you live in your sin all the way up to your dying breath, you will die in your sin. And that sin earns you an eternity spent in the lake of fire. Scripture is very clear. We are all sinners headed for hell. It's only when we recognize that we're helpless to save ourselves, that we need a savior, that Jesus is that savior by taking our place and paying our sin death debt as a substitute on our behalf and using that as the foundation to repent of our sin and make Jesus the king over the rest of our lives that God has mercy on us and saves us from that. If you never repent... You never take Jesus as your savior and king, and you die in your sin, you will never go to where Jesus went back to, the kingdom of heaven. It's that simple. Everyone listening to Jesus, however, at this point, still has no clue what he's talking about, as is often the case. They grasp that he's talking about his death, but they Think he's talking about committing suicide to make that death happen. Verse 22. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where am I going? You cannot come. And a cruel twist of irony, Jesus is obviously not talking about killing himself, but that these very same people would have a hand in causing the death that he's referring to. He would not kill himself, but he would sacrifice himself and lay his life down in order to save those who God would have mercy on. We talked about this last week as well, but here again, Jesus brings up the completely different origins of both he and the rest of humanity. And how there will always be discrepancies between their understanding of the world, God, and his word, and Jesus' understanding. Verse 23. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus has no origin. He has always existed in perfect communion, fellowship, and relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is of the same being, essence, and nature as God the Father and God the Spirit. The Apostle John has already been very clear about this at the very beginning of his book, and this is simply Jesus himself confirming this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is not talking about God's beginning. Whose beginning is this talking about? our beginning the world's beginning the universe's beginning as God the Son the reference of which means his submission to the Father's will and not some explanation of a created origin Jesus has access to all of the wisdom of God and in actuality is the very revelation of the wisdom of God. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the very wisdom of God. The Son of God, as the Word, was the way and power through whom God created the universe. And here's where I'm going. Humanity itself, both man and woman. John goes on to write about Jesus. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, not even one thing Not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In other words, every single human being that has ever existed owes their existence to God. And yet there are a lot of people walking around this earth who think that the equation begins with them. They think that A, in their finite and limited understanding of the universe, they can conclude that God doesn't even exist... B, that if God does exist, he exists to serve them and give them a good life. And if their definition of a good life doesn't match up with what's happening, then that's enough to question God's existence. C, that if God exists, their moral code replaces his. And his judgment must adhere to how good or bad they think they are or they think other people are. If God's moral code in his word doesn't match up with their moral code, then guess what? Whose moral code either gets twisted to meet the other's moral code or just gets tossed out the window? I think we all know the answer to that. Like I mentioned last week, either the equation to how you view the universe and the world around you, and how you view morality, and how you view yourself and your eternal destination, it either starts with you or some other human, or it starts with God. You simply cannot have it both ways. It doesn't work that way. You either can have one or the other. You either start everything with God and his word and filter how you view the universe and the world around you, how you view morality and how you view yourself and your eternal destination through an accurate understanding of his word and what God chooses to reveal about himself in it, or you start with yourself. It's either one or the other. Jesus in our passage today is calling the Pharisees and God is calling us today to see that we must start with God or we're already condemned. Verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In connection with what he just said, Jesus says, you can't come anywhere close in your finite, and limited, and fallen way of thinking with what I just simply know from having an intimate, intertwined, inextricable, and perfect connection to and relationship with God the Father who came up with and holds the ultimate plan for everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen in the universe, including what is happening with and what will happen with your very souls. Because of that, out of all of this world and out of all of this life, this is the only thing you need to know, Jesus says in verse 24. Every single human is a sinner, has been born into sin, only confirms that state of sinfulness with decisions they make every day, and because the payment for that sin is the second death or eternal hell, that is the only life and afterlife they have and have to look forward to. That is the only and one thing you can bank on in this life. There is only one way out of it, Jesus says in verse 24. You are promised that fate, what we just talked about, unless you believe, and then it's rendered in the English NASB as I am he. If you have an NASB Bible, you'll notice that the word he is in italics, which means it's not in the original language. What is translated from the original Greek? Simply, I am. If you've never heard this reference, it goes all the way back to when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, commanding him to go back to Egypt and free God's people from slavery. When Moses asks God, what is the name of the God he should give the Israelites, when they ask who sent him, in a world of a plethora of Egyptian, Canaanite, Babylonian, and various other idols and false deities all over the world, God simply tells Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. What did God mean by this? Exactly what we've been talking about. God needed no other name or definition or explanation because he is it. He is the only God who has ever existed. He is the one who created the universe and created humanity. And he is the one who sent God the Son to save those he would have mercy on and save from their sin. He needs no other clarification. I am or Yahweh is himself the embodiment and therefore definition of wisdom, truth, morality, love, Peace, joy, long-suffering patience, justice, order, light, purpose, and meaning. And what is anti-God and doesn't agree with what is plainly stated and taught throughout his word is sin and is evil. Since God is the embodiment of wisdom, he chooses what he reveals about himself and what we need to know about who he is. His plan for humanity and how creation backs that up. Since God is the embodiment of truth, he is the sole authority of what truth is and what truth is not revealed in his word. And contrary to popular belief, it is not up to humans as individual beliefs of your truth versus my truth. Since God is the embodiment of morality and goodness, he determines what is moral and good and what is not and has laid out everything we need to know for that in his word already. Since God is the embodiment of love, he determines what love is, how he would show us the ultimate definition of sacrificial love, how humans should show love in general, in friendship, and in marriage, and what is counterfeit human versions of love, such as abuse, exploitation, and what is really just lust. Since God is the embodiment of peace, He determines how we should gain peace with him, how we can have the peace that can only come from him, and how we are to live peaceably with one another. Since God is the embodiment of joy, he determines in which situations we can always be given his joy. Spoiler alert, that's in every situation, no matter how painful and dark it is. Since God is the embodiment of long-suffering patience, he determines how much patience he will have with someone until he disciplines them, which should be a warning to all of us to not toy around with his patience by continually and knowingly living in sin. Since God is the embodiment of justice, he determines what is just and what is not. Why certain people he's had and will have mercy and grace on to save, and why certain people he has not and he will not. And what will be his justice in avenging wrongs and pouring out his justice on the entire world during the great tribulation period of the end times. Since God is the embodiment of order, he determines how the universe is held together. How we as humans are held together. What is the proper way of handling different situations? The resurrection order. And how the different end times events are ordered. God never changes, his word never changes. And we never have to wonder about what he thinks about different things or what he will do. Since God is the embodiment of light, he, will not, he not only determines what is thinking, action, and behavior that is in accordance with his light, but as John also wrote in John 1, every other fallen angelic being or force is simply the darkness that is warring against the light of God's kingdom. And since God is the embodiment of light, and since light always overtakes darkness, you see that every time you walk into a dark room and flip the light on. Light always overtakes darkness. Like we see in everyday illustrations, God already holds the victory over the darkness since the darkness had no hope of ever conquering the light in the first place. And since God is the embodiment of purpose and meaning, He is the one who imbues everything and everyone he's created with his purpose and his meaning. It's not up to the creation as to what our purpose and meaning is. It's entirely contingent on what the creator says is our purpose and meaning. As humans, we were created to glorify God and start everything in our lives with God, not the other way around. All of that and so much more, again, because we can only have a finite and limited understanding of God and who he is, is all wrapped up in God's statement to Moses, I am who I am. And therefore, everything else owes its existence, definition, purpose, and meaning to me. So when Jesus says that you must believe that he is also I am, He's saying that we must believe that he is everything connected to that existence and God himself. That's a far cry from just believing that a dude from Nazareth once came, who looked like a hippie, said some cool things about love, and that everything he was and said could be just boiled down to, guys, just love each other with no regard to any standards. And that he could just be lopped in with all the other notable world's names like Aristotle, Pliny, Buddha, Confucius, Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, Mohammed, Descartes, Mother Teresa, Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking, or Taylor Swift. That last one both is and is not tongue-in-cheek. Jesus made the connection between him and God the Father so strong and powerful that those listening to him, they could not help but ask the question, first part of verse 25, so they were saying to him, Who are you? Who are you? You've said all these things about, who are you? If you have an ESV or NIV version of the Bible, you'll see this written as, The second part of verse 25. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? And you'll see in the ESV or NIV version of the Bible that it's written as just what I've been claiming all along. Were you even listening? If it were any one of us at this point, I think we'd pack up and leave and say, I can't with you people anymore. (laughs) But because Jesus is God and the embodiment of love and long-suffering patience, he continues to teach them who he is. Firstly, he hearkens back to everything else he said about himself. He has always existed with God the Father and is himself the very wisdom of God. Since he is God and therefore the definition of the truth he has the right to testify about himself and not only that but God the Father is the second witness to his claims about himself. He is the only hope of salvation, the bread of sustenance of both faith and life the one who will resurrect after death and who will resurrect everyone who has died both those who put their faith in him before they died to eternal life and those who didn't to eternal condemnation the one prophesied as the messiah and deliverer throughout all of the jewish scriptures the one who came from eternal knowledge and would be returning to eternal knowledge and just now jesus comes right out and sums all of that up by saying that he is one and the same as the one who simply referred to himself as i am to his people, and all that that includes. Amen. Lastly, for this morning, Jesus says to the people in verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. According to one biblical scholar, Jesus is saying, I, I, I have so many more things I could say to you in judgment and condemnation for your unbelief, but I'm not going to right now. All you need to know is what I've already been telling you all this time, that the one who sent me is the embodiment and definition of truth, and all I'm doing is revealing to you what that sole source of truth has told me to tell you. That's all I'm doing. What I also see here is a definitive statement In other words, Jesus has laid out the truth. The people have the decision as to what they're going to do with it. Whether accept it as truth or reject it. But they can't accuse Jesus of being untrue. This is it. No matter what you think, Jesus says, take it or leave it. This is what it is. Take it or leave it. We started out our time this morning with a mindset of Jesus not being of this world as Jesus himself said in verse 23. But thank God he didn't just stay completely above and transcendent above this world, amen? But obey the Father's will to come into this world, not to unilaterally condemn it, but to provide the only way for us to be able to also not be of this world. Only through him. And because our salvation only comes through the one who is not of this world, and the origin of his word is not of this world, we need to expect that neither one is going to make sense to this world and will be outright rejected. So, don't be surprised by that. Our basic salvation is tied to the promise, unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. Unless we believe that Jesus is everything he said he was and did what he did by laying down his life to save us from our sins and that he did everything as God himself, we will die in our sins and experience the eternal condemnation, judgment, and torment for it. But beyond that, how much do we view God and all three persons of the Trinity as I am in our everyday lives? Do we believe and live out that God the Father as I am holds the perfect plan for what he deems is perfect in our lives and be okay with whatever that includes? Likewise, do we believe the Father as I am will provide for every single one of our needs both physical and spiritual? Do we believe that God the Son as I am and the embodiment of the Word of God is the only source of truth by which we base everything about our lives and that nothing starts with what we think is best? Do we believe that He is I am as it's his blood and his blood alone that we can ever gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven do we rest in him as i am for being enough for us in every circumstance in this life do we live to please him as i am and king out of love for his substitution for us do we surrender everything about who we are up to god the spirit as I am and His transformation of every area of our lives? Are we futilely trying to hold something back from the Spirit as I am? Are we seeking God the Spirit as I am, as our only lasting source of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? God in all three persons is simply I am. He needs no other definition. And he is the origin and starting point of everything. Creation, truth, way to heaven, and purpose and meaning in this world. Are we recognizing him as I am? As the starting point of everything in every area of our lives and living that out in an everyday way. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this conversation that Jesus is continuing to have with the Pharisees and all that it teaches us today, all that is wrapped up and included in that statement, I am. And that unless we believe that you are I am and repent of our sins, we will just get what we deserve for those sins. Lord, we thank you for even creating one way, a way for us to escape from that. For us to be saved from that. And it is only through the substitutionary atonement death of Jesus on our behalf. And rising again on the third day to give us new life. May we make that the foundation of everything who we are. Not only for our salvation but recognizing who you are as I am in every area of our lives from this point forward. I pray all these things in the power of Jesus Christ's name. Amen.